But tonight, like I say, we are going to look at the last days of Jesus, the cross. And I, I titled this, O Love Incomprehensible. That's one of my favorite lines from a hymn. That uh, phrase actually comes from Augustus Toplady. Augustus Toplady wrote Rock of Ages. That's the hymn that you probably know by him, if you know any Christian hymns. Um, but he also wrote these lines, O love incomprehensible that made thee bleed for me. The judge of all hath suffered death to set his prisoner free. And I've always loved that line. I actually took that verse and made it a chorus of a song, gosh, probably 10 years ago now, and then I took some verses from a hymn by my favorite hymn writer, Ann Steele. She has a 39-verse hymn uh, on the birth, life, death of Christ. I actually posted it on the Belmont RUF Facebook page like I do every year. So I think it's a really great meditation for Holy Week. Maybe you saw it. So you might know a few of these lines. Um, I love the way she talks about... Um, some of, the, some of these things. We'll get into that. But first, let's read the passage. It's a rather long passage, um, but it's probably familiar to a lot of you. Um, we're going to start at John chapter 18 at verse 28. Yes, I need to start on the right side of this. And you'll notice uh, we're going to go through chapter 19 as well. So this is God's word. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas. He's the, the Jewish high priest to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, no, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, king of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I am bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify, crucify. 
But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he's even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. Now, I was thinking even uh, as we sang that hymn, Sovereign Grace Over Sin Abounding, which we haven't sung that one in a long time. That was a way to dig into the, the, the deep catalog there. Um, but the, the idea of pondering the love of God through the Christ, through the cross, is really what we're about tonight. You know, as you look at all this stuff that I've read, there are so many ironies throughout this whole section. Uh, and, and ironies have a way of saying, slow down and ponder what's going on here. There's more going on here than you may at first notice. There are things that fit together that people didn't intend to fit together, but God intended them to fit together. You see the presence of all these ironies. It's one of the ways the scripture is showing you that God is sovereign over what's going on. The other place you see that is that as you read the four gospels, the closer you get to the cross, the more times, the more frequently, it uses the phrase, according to the scriptures. Where that phrase appears every so often, that when you get to this last week, it shows up all over the time. In other words, to say that as, as gruesome, as unjust as all of these events were, this was what God had determined beforehand should happen. It doesn't mean that the people involved weren't evil and wicked, that justice was not abused, but it was according to the will of God the Father. And we're going to see that a little bit later when we look at a little passage in Acts. That's exactly how the disciples understood it as they looked back at it. So let's look at some of the, the irony. The first thing, really, the way Ann Steele puts it, arraigned at Pilate's impious bar, unparalleled disgrace. Now she puts an exclamation point at that. The audacity of the king of the world, Jesus, the one through whom everything was made, 
The one who the Bible says upholds the whole universe by the word of his power is here standing before a petty authoritarian judge who has no right to judge him. He doesn't care about truth. He doesn't care about justice. He finds no basis for a charge and has Jesus flogged anyway. The only thing that really concerns him is if he's going to get in trouble with Caesar. He doesn't care. The Jewish leaders, look at this, the way it starts. The Jewish leaders in verse 28 are worried about ceremonially uncleanness so that they can eat the Passover. What's the irony? We talked about the Last Supper last week. Jesus is the Passover. Here they are crucifying the actual Passover lamb that the Passover was pointing to, and they're worried about being ceremonially unclean rather than what's right and what's just. Cowardice abounds as well. They refuse to even tell Pilate the charges. Do you notice that? Pilate says, what are the charges? Verse 29. And what do they say? Hey, if he weren't a criminal, do you think we would have brought him to you? Why won't they say? And frustration abounds as well. The Jewish leaders wish they could kill Jesus himself, but they can't. And Pilate knows it, and he rubs their nose in it. Look at verse 31. Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. They don't. And and Pilate, again, he's a weak little man flaunting his power. Power politics, as a matter of fact, are everywhere in this scene. Pilate's not afraid of the Jews. He doesn't give in to them. He mocks them all through the passage. He loves to brandish his power. He gets little digs in wherever he can to remind them that they don't have real power and that their so-called king is a pathetic, weak man. He does it over and over and over again. Pilate is afraid of two things. He's afraid of physical power and he's afraid of his boss. Look at verse uh, 19, 8. What is it that makes him afraid? Verse 8, when the Jewish leaders tell him that he claimed to be the Son of God. Now, Pilate doesn't understand that the way we understand it. When, he's not, he doesn't understand the Jewish tradition. He doesn't understand the, the way that phrase is used in the Bible. He understands that phrase the way the Greeks understood that phrase, which is, this is a divine man. This is um, a, a person who may be a god in human flesh, a superman, so to speak. And I just had him flogged for no reason. Uh-oh, <laughs> that's a problem. You guys should have told me that before I started messing with this guy. Um, so that, he's concerned about that. But he also is really concerned about Herod. That's the king, right? And the other gospels bring this out as well. Um, he's afraid of Herod, who's, who's the king. He's just the governor. Herod is the king. Herod is Jewish, but he's a traitor to the Jewish nation. He's a puppet king for Caesar, right? And Pilate is concerned about Herod the king and about Caesar, because if things get out of hand, if there's a riot that breaks out over all this stuff, then Herod is going to not be happy, and maybe even Caesar 
will not be happy. Now, here's the thing. Caesar, I mean, sorry, well, Caesar too, but Herod and Pilate were not nice men. We know from other writings about them what they were like. As a matter of fact, um, they were quick to kill anybody that they saw as a rival to their power. We know this because they did it to other people. And Caesar himself had quipped about Herod, this Herod, um, the father of this Herod, that his pigs had a longer life expectancy than his own family because he killed numerous members of his own family when he thought that they might um, try to stage a coup. So they, were, they, they didn't care about truth or justice. If anybody seemed to be a threat to their power, they would put them down. Pilate's a weak man putting on a brave show. He believes power comes through force, mocking, trying to keep people happy. You see him in the midst of that coercion. And, and, and I think in a lot of ways we can identify with Pilate. When you go through this story, I always wonder, you know, who do we identify with? You know, at one level, we should identify with the people that would rather have Barabbas than Jesus, because sometimes that's, that's who we are and what we do. But I think a lot of times we're like Pilate. We're trying to keep everybody happy, and we really don't care so much about what's right. Our fear, our weakness, we try to mask it by bravado, sometimes by oppressing others wherever we have power. But Jesus is the one with real power as he stands before Pilate. Look at 1834. Jesus questions the questioner. You know, what's interesting is, you know, people sometimes say that Jesus didn't speak at all before Pilate. No, he did. He actually challenged the unjustness of the situation, but he didn't offer up a personal defense. He does push back, but he doesn't defend himself. Pilate's question, what is truth? I hope you see it's not an honest one. It's not an honest one. It's a smokescreen. And I will tell you, I, you know, one, I hope one of the hallmarks of RUF is that we take honest questions seriously. But I will also tell you that not all questions are honest ones. Sometimes questions, sometimes objections to Christianity are smoke screens because we don't want to deal with the real God. And, and I think in our day and age, there's almost a certain, um, I would say heroism, there's a certain kind of moral high ground sometimes people try to, to, to take by saying that they're struggling and they're doubting. And, you know, I, I'm not against that at all. But I do think it's worth asking, what's really going on with me and my doubts? What's really going on with my struggles? Are they real? Are they honest? Or are they a smokescreen? I tell people, you know, honestly, I rarely do what you might call apologetics, like defending the faith, because usually the questions that people have are connected to their story and to the things they've experienced and the injustice that they see in the world and trying to square God is good and yet life is hard and things aren't right. Pilate doesn't have honest questions. Jesus still interacts with him, right? But his questions, he doesn't really care about the truth. 
Now notice this, Jesus is deliberately ambiguous about the nature of his kingdom. And you might say, man, it seemed like Pilate wants to know about the kingdom. Here's a perfect opportunity for Jesus to evangelize Pilate. I think Jesus rightly perceives that Pilate isn't interested. He answers, you say, which is ambiguous. He doesn't answer yes. Why? Well, it's hard to even begin to explain it to Pilate because his kingdom is not about political power. And yet, how can he say no? Because the kingdom is not merely spiritual. I know sometimes, you know, there's this verse um, in one of the Gospels where Jesus says, the kingdom of God is within you. You heard of that? And a lot of people take that to say, well, the kingdom is just in your heart. That's actually not what that verse means at all, because the you there is plural. And in Greek, when the you is plural, it means it's in your midst, not in you, like inside of you. Jesus never said that the kingdom of God is just something in your heart. The kingdom of God is about bringing shalom, the right ordering of all things. It's not just about warm, peaceful, easy feelings in your heart. Come Sunday and you'll hear me talk about this, about one of the most misunderstood verses in the Bible, Colossians 3.15, about the peace of God ruling in your heart. It's not at all about feelings, not at all, because your heart has nothing to do with feelings in the Bible. The peace there is about the objective peace that God has brought through the death and life of Jesus, reconciling God and man. That's the peace. And when it says it should rule in your heart, it means it should be at the center of everything you are, every decision you make, everything you think, every plan you make, every fear that threatens to overwhelm you. The reconciliation that God has wrought through Jesus should be at the center of you. Some of you here, you know, um, when he's talking about the kingdom, and he says the kingdom is within you, really within your midst, what he means is, I'm the king, and I'm here. I'm here. So, so the kingdom of Jesus is not just spiritual. There have been a lot of Christians, um, particularly evangelical 19th century traditions, who kind of buy into this theology of the rapture and all that stuff, who make a big deal about how the kingdom is only spiritual and it won't be physical, it won't affect anything until the millennial kingdom. That's not what the Bible means by this stuff at all. The kingdom means more than just saving souls. It means making all things right. Just as God created a whole world of God-glorifying potential that has now been spoiled by sin, so the kingdom of God is pushing back against everything that the fall and that sin entering the world has screwed up. The kingdom is big. It changes everything, including politics. And yet it's not merely about politics. But you know what the really amazing thing, Pilate, Herod, bloodthirsty men with no morals, they don't consider Jesus a threat to their power. Isn't that remarkable? When of course he is. Three centuries from now, Christianity will have taken over the Roman Empire. And yet Pilate and Herod, bloodthirsty men who, you know, never, never stopped when there was a perceived threat to their power, don't consider Jesus powerful. His power doesn't fit their categories, you see. 
And I wonder how often we miss Jesus as powerful because his power doesn't fit our categories. You see, Pilate in the end chooses politics as his savior. We all know how good that works, right? And you know what's interesting in Pilate's life, it's not going to be very long before he makes a political blunder. He gets removed from office and is forced to commit suicide. So putting his hope in politics and keeping everybody happy, Herod and the Jewish leaders, didn't work out very well for him. It never does. It never does. Pilate wants to ride the fence and keep people happy. No wonder he's miserable and fearful. (laughs) Can you identify? Can you relate? Ann Steele also uses this wonderful phrase when she talks about the, the, the crowd wanting Barabbas. She says, see spotless innocence appear in guilt's detested place. Jesus and the great exchange. Uh, I was talking to somebody, I guess it was last week, about different ideas and theories about the atonement. Let me tell you, the, there are different things that flow from the atonement, but the idea of substitution is the key to all of them. If substitution is not true, then it's not an expression of the love of God. If substitution is not true, then it doesn't vanquish the powers and the principalities. Like Paul talks about in Colossians where he says that Jesus disarmed the powers and the principalities by taking the law that stood opposed to us, nailing it to the cross. What does that mean? That means Jesus takes our place, takes the punishment that the law demands for us. All of these other ideas about the atonement, and and there are other things the atonement does. It does demonstrate the love of God. It demonstrates the justice of God. It demonstrates the mercy of God. It demonstrates everything. But ultimately, the key to understanding what's going on here is that Jesus dies as a substitute. Isaiah 53 put it so clearly. It's a great passage to go back and look at. The punishment that brought us peace, Isaiah says, was on him. The blow to him, the peace to us. Barabbas, the murderer who gets the freedom that Jesus deserves. Jesus literally takes the cross of Barabbas, the punishment that the real revolutionary deserves. And yet so often we're just like the crowd. We choose Barabbas over Jesus. Isaiah 53 says that we esteemed him not, the servant of God, we esteemed him not. That means we didn't find him weighty or valuable. And if you want to understand the heart of sin, here's the heart of sin. It's failing to find Jesus weighty and beautiful and finding other things more beautiful. That's why we sometimes pray uh, the words that I, I first heard from a man named Bill Lane, who's with Jesus now. He used to regularly pray that Jesus would become more beautiful and believable to us because you need both of them really for real transformation to happen. That's what's going on here. Jesus is not beautiful or believable to them. They don't esteem him not Of course, the irony is Jesus is the truly dangerous one. Letting Barabbas out, you might think, well, that's crazy. He already started to start an insurrection. That's okay. They can gather the Roman army and get him again and put him down again. It's not long after this. It's A.D. 70, about 40 years after this event, 
when the Jews do stage a revolt and the Romans come in and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple, wipe it out. So the Romans can deal with insurrection, but they can't stop Jesus. He's the truly dangerous one. He has no army, yet they can't stop the spread of this influence unless they kill him now. At least that's what they think. But then three days later, he rises and proves that he can't be stopped. See, the crowd's intense hatred leads them to do some really irrational things. Give us this one who's tried to start a rebellion. I wonder how often, how often our anger <laughs> makes us do irrational things. I know it does for me. They even go so far as to say this incredible thing. We have no king but Caesar. Do you know how extraordinary that is for the Jewish leaders to say that? Like, if you understand the history of the Bible, like, that has to, like, strike you right in the gut. You'd be like, whoa, don't say that. You remember the last time they say that? Last time they say that is when, you know, God, you know, rejected, was rejected as king by, by the people. And they say, we want a king. And Samuel was like, you know, God, they want a king. And God says to Samuel, this is before Saul gets to be king, God says, they've rejected me as their king. They're asking for a king like all the other nations have. I'll give them a king like that. I'll give them this guy Saul. He's quite the physical specimen. He's a head taller than everybody else. They want a king who can fight their battles for them. I'll give them that kind of king. It's not going to work very well. But the real heartache, God says, is they've rejected me as their king. And he speaks like a spurned lover. So it's a pretty extraordinary thing for God. Rather than saying, okay, I've had enough with these people and their fickle love. I'm going to blot them off the face of the earth. No, he says, I'm going to give them a king even though they broke my heart. And here they say it again. We have no king. I mean, the whole, the whole thing, like the Jews are longing for the Messiah to come to kick out the Romans because they are an occupied country right now. They don't have freedom to do what they want. They think that their law, well, they know the law was given by God and they can't obey it. They can't kill this blasphemer. And then they say, yeah, but we have no king but Caesar. It's extraordinary. Jesus is the powerful one who looks like the poster boy for weakness. Talk about irony. In 19.5, Pilate, after beating Jesus, holds up this swollen man. Isaiah says that his face was so disfigured he didn't even look like a man. That's what Isaiah 53 says about this. And Pilate holds him up and says, here's the man. Here's the man. John loves this. When people in John's gospel speak more than they know, John always points it out. Here is the man, the Savior, beaten, silent as a lamb going to slaughter. The man of power, but not the kind of power Pilate or the crowd or the religious leaders could see. His power is the power to become weak. Jesus, the king of the Jews. Pilate, of course, means this as an insult, doesn't he? But God means it as a proclamation of what's really true. And I didn't read this because I've read so much already. But you know the part where, where Pilate writes in three languages, King of the Jews, and he makes a sign and puts it up there. And the Jews object. The Jewish leaders say, don't write that, Pilate. Write, he claimed to be the King of the Jews. And Pilate says, what I've written, I've written. Again, Pilate means, to, again, to, to be a dig. 
but he writes more than he knows. And he ends up writing it in every known language that was really the important languages in that part of the world at that time. A proclamation to everyone who Jesus is. Right? Pilate is unwittingly serving God's redemptive purposes. Unwittingly serving as a prophet even of the king that he's executing. And here we have the supreme example of what Martin Luther called the theology of glory versus the theology of the cross. See, to Pilate, the crowd, the suffering Jesus proves that he's not the king. If he was the king, he would not be suffering. But in fact, he is the king, and he is the king that they couldn't see. Luther used to talk about this. He said that the theologians of glory are those who try to spy upon God in his nakedness. That they try to think about the love of God, the strength of God, the mercy of God, apart from Jesus crucified. But what Martin Luther said is, don't turn God into a series of philosophical abstractions. If you want to understand who God is, look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to understand who God really is, look at Jesus on the cross. If you want to understand the love of God, if you want to understand the justice of God, the mercy of God, the long-suffering, Jesus crucified is the clearest picture. When it looks like God is not working, here's the heart of the theology of the cross, when it looks like God is not working, he's actually doing his greatest work. And Luther said, that is the lens through which you should understand all of life. Because it wasn't just true on that Good Friday. It's true today. When it looks like he's being defeated and publicly shamed, they strip him naked. Colossians 2 says he is in fact defeating the powers and principles and making a public spectacle of them. This should always be the grid through which we look at life and the questions. When we wonder where is God and what he's doing, man, my plea for you is to keep your heart open because of the theology of the cross. That God is often working when it looks like he's not working at all. And be so careful about coming to quick conclusions that you think you understand what God's doing and you don't like it. You maybe don't. You maybe don't. Keep your heart open. Now I want to just say this last thing. I know I've written more than this. Well, two, two things. The fulfillment of Scripture, like I said, the longer, closer you get to the cross, the more the Bible says this was according to the Scripture, according to the Scripture, according to the Scripture. But yet, in the middle of this, you see the tension that's everywhere in the Bible between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Everything here is according to the Scripture. It's according to God's sovereign plan, but the people involved are not robots. They do wicked, evil things. And this is how the Christians understood this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, the apostles are praying, and listen to what they say. They said, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They're praying to God. That's the you. They did 
what your power, God, and will had decided beforehand should happen. That's a pretty strong statement about God's sovereignty. They didn't just do what you knew was going to happen. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose, it says, and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. So the Bible says both of these things are true. Jesus was crucified by the hands of wicked men, but it was just exactly what your set purpose and will had decided beforehand would happen. Do you see this? So people always times ask, like, well, which is it? Is God sovereign or is mankind free? And the answer to that, biblically, is both. As a matter of fact, you can't make sense of Christianity at all if those aren't both true. It's not that the truth is in the middle somewhere. No, actually, those two things are compatible, even if we don't understand how they're compatible. But that's what the Bible says, and think about it this way. If God's sovereignty is not true, then the death of Jesus cannot be God's plan to rescue the world. It it can only be him making the best of a bad situation. Oh my gosh, my Messiah, he got crucified. Oh, let let me think, oh, I can use that. Hey, I can use that, I can work with that. That's not the picture at all. The cross was God's plan. But it was a plan to deal with sin. It wasn't like some fairy tale. Real sin, because human beings are responsible for what they do. He was put to death by the hands of wicked men. The Bible has no problem saying clearly God is sovereign, clearly human beings are responsible. And the cross makes no sense if those aren't both true. Is there a paradox there? Yeah, there is. But it's the only way to understand what's going on and the only way to understand Christianity. All right. Last bit. Gaze upon him as he suffers on the cross. A couple things to bring out. He drinks the stimulant, the sour wine vinegar, which was designed to prolong life and increase suffering. When they offer him that, he takes it so that he's fully present in what's going on. But in Mark 15, 23, he refuses the sedative drink that they offer him to be merciful, which is wine mixed with myrrh. That they would give the victim sometimes out of mercy because it was a sedative. He refuses the sedative. He takes the stimulant that wakes him up and makes him more fully present to what's going on because Jesus is fully resolved to be fully present, fully intentional, fully loving, all the way to the very end. He is in control the whole time. No one takes his life from him. He gives it up and he finishes the work he came to do. He says, it is finished, which in the Greek is actually only one word. And it's an important word. It's it's not a cry of defeat like, oh, I'm done. It's not a cry of defeat. It's a word that means I have completed the task you've given me to do. And it's a word that's used particularly of religious tasks. Jesus, at the very end, as he breathes his last, is saying, I did the work I was supposed to do. There was a purpose to this, and I've accomplished it. And then they lay him in the tomb. 
I remember when I was uh, in high school hearing this sermon by Tony Campolo. It was a fabulous sermon. Um, you guys probably don't even know Tony Campolo. People don't know him as much as they used to. But he, um, he gave this sermon about it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And that's where we live today. It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Jesus has died the death that we deserved. Even though he lived the life that all of us should have lived. Still, all things are not right. But it's Friday and Sunday's coming. Sunday's coming. We live in the already, not yet. The death of the substitute has happened. But there's an even better day coming when all things will be made right. They lay him in the tomb, but it's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story, even though everybody there thought it was the end of the story. We'll pick up the story next week. Let's pray.